Mac Power Users, Episode 226, Workflows with Manton Reese. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Katie Floyd, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And David, I'm excited about this episode and by special request of some of our listeners on Mac Power users. And I think this is actually a special request that came from Twitter. Um, we are very pleased to welcome to Mac Power users, uh, developer, podcaster, just general man about the web, uh, Manton Reese. Welcome, man. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, I believe, yeah. David, the the way that this challenge came about is is one of our listeners was was listening to Manton's podcast. Uh, you do a, an excellent podcast with Daniel Jalcut, uh, who was also on a previous episode of Mac Power Users, and and said that they were listening to your podcast and listening to our podcast and could not distinguish your voice from David's voice. And I think challenged us to have a podcast because they were certain that I would just be confused and not know what to do with myself. That's great. I hope we'll see. We're putting that to the test now. We'll see. We'll see what you think and what <laughs> listeners think. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever you say, David, whatever you say. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was that, Manton? No. Exactly. Now I'm, I'm confused and I know who, who I, am, I think. Actually, Manton has been on our list for some time. But when I saw that tweet, I'm like, okay, that's it. We just got to get him on the show. I mean, if we can confuse the audience, I mean, why not? Right. I like yeah, I like it. And I've heard that before about other people's podcasts when there's two hosts and they can't quite tell sometimes who's who's talking. So we'll we'll I don't think anyone has that problem with the, the podcast Daniel and I do, but we'll sometimes and you know, you guys do the same thing, but you, you say the other person's name every once in a while and that helps the conversation. As long yeah, as no one's confused when I'm talking, I'm fine about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well the um it's it's fun, but it's also odd as a podcaster because we I listen to a lot of the shows to kind of critique myself, and I still am not used to the sound of my voice because you know obviously in your head you hear it differently. And anybody out there who hasn't listened to a recording of their voice recently, do it one day just for giggles because you'll be surprised. I I can't believe anybody listens to me when I hear the sound of my voice. It sounds like a complete you know um, silly dude. I'm not sure that. I'm not sure why anybody listens, but Welcome there you have my life. No, yeah, I'm sorry. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, so Manton, um, you, you got started as a developer, but you've actually kind of put yourself out there quite a bit and you do a podcast and you develop apps and you have an indie business. And I just thought that it would be a lot of fun to talk to you about some of the stuff because you're also a geek and you're using your Mac to to kind of hold it all together. So uh, we thought that what we would do with the show is we'd start with the development side and then work our way over to more general productivity stuff. Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, sounds great. The, um, you know, we've had developers on the show uh, before, including your pal Daniel, who's, you know, uh, just like you. He's a very he's a very busy guy. He's doing a lot of stuff. And it's always fun to me to listen to developers um how their workflows work. It seems to me like if there was a theme to development workflows, it's that you don't have a lot of workflows. Instead, you go in Xcode and you just work like a crazy man, really long hours. Right. That's, that's, that's a lot of it. Just, just typing away at the keyboard and just trying to get it done. And also I think now there's maybe less choice in workflows than there used to be. I mean, every developer has a slightly different way of approaching their work, but like you said, it kind of all starts with Xcode now. That didn't used to be, 
the way it was really. I mean, there were third party developer tools and I mean, everyone basically kind of used the same stuff, but now it's the way Apple's pushing it and the way Apple provides basically out of the box, everything you need to get started. It's not, maybe it's not as much variation uh, yeah, I, as, as it could I, be. I used to play with development. I never really saw myself as a programmer, but I always liked to tinker. Even just when I was a little kid, you know, even using like an Atari 400, I remember it was the first computer. Well, actually, it was a, a Tandy color computer. It was the first one I programmed on. But the Atari was the first one I did anything like assembly code on. And uh, the development tools for Apple were quite expensive when I was young and you wanted to get into it. I mean, that mm-hmm. it, it was not a small thing. And then uh, then you look at it now and Apple gives away Xcode. I mean, you don't even have to have a developer account and you can get this amazing development tool. Yeah, it's great. And it's, it's so wonderful for everybody just starting. Yeah, because I remember the same thing. I mean, when I was getting, I started Mac development back in the old you know, classic days, 20 years ago or whatever. And I remember saving up money to buy like the academic version of, you know, semantic C++ or metrics code or whatever. And those were hundreds of dollars, right? I mean, it wasn't just easy to do if you were a kid yeah and uh hundreds of dollars 20 years ago too i mean right yeah <laughs> right and i think i i think so, like the like i, I think I, I just said academic version i think some of that was a little cheaper but it still is money i mean software was at 99 cents back then i mean it cost real money and so if you're passionate about it, of course you did it anyway because you had to and wanted to but it's so much easier now well, what and we could you... probably back up a little bit just to say, you know, what you do, because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you have a company, Riverfold Software, that puts out several products, uh, one of which is I, I love is Tweet Library. And uh, so you've got the you got Tweet Library and then you've got Clipstart, which is a program that organizes videos. Mm-hmm. And um, you also had I forget the name. What was the name of that project where it synchronizes um, Tweet Marker. Twitter streams? Tweet marker. I couldn't yeah, live marker, without yep. tweet marker. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fun thing to work on. And it was a nice, I, I guess I tried to have a nice mix of things. So that's, I mean, the things you just mentioned, like one's a web service tweet marker, one's an iOS app, and then one's a Mac app, like you said. And I still consider myself a Mac developer, but unfortunately that Mac app Clipstar hasn't been updated in a while. I've been working on a new version, but like to users, it hasn't been updated in a while. And so most of the time, day to day, you know, these days, working on iOS and web stuff, but I still have that Mac stuff. I still love working on those apps. But really that's kind of impressive that you're on multiple platforms like that, especially, I mean, you know, a lot of people do both Mac and iOS development because it's very similar. They both use Xcode, but web development is an entirely different animal. That's true. And I like the mix. I like, I like, it's refreshing sometimes to say, I'm going to take a break from kind of native development and I'm going to work on a web thing or something, something just completely different. And it's hard too going back and forth uh, between those, but I do like the mix. It's, it's refreshing to me sometimes to work on something that's completely different and new. And, you know, just kind of going back in the history of different jobs I've had and whatnot. I mean, I think there was a time, you know, kind of the dot com, you know, the face of the world or whatever. And I, I never I didn't I wasn't in Silicon Valley. I didn't really cash in on any of that. But I was I was around for like when there was so much excitement about the Web. And so I had a job related to that. And I always like to come back to web development every once in a while. Um, I don't know, just like the, kind of the balance of working on different platforms. Yeah. I've, I've wondered because like in my day job, I'm a generalist in a lot of ways, you know, I've done a lot of different things over the years. 
I've never picked one thing and just done it over and over again. And sometimes you think, well, boy, that was a mistake because the people who do one thing over and over again get really good at that one thing. But I just don't think I have the personality for it. I like I like to, you know, explore and kind of try different things. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think if I had just focused on even in just the last five, six years only done iOS, I would be a better iOS developer right now. There's no question. Um, you know, I, I would be I would my experience obviously would be much more in the types of apps I've been working on. But I like having the mix and I like doing both. And it's actually handy sometimes to build both the back end, the web side of things and the native like client on iOS or Mac, because nowadays, you know, you have iCloud and you have services you can lean on a little bit. But nowadays on iOS and mobile, especially almost every app needs some kind of web component. And if you can build that yourself or you at least know enough to work with people that can help you build it, I think that's nice. So how did you get started in deciding that you wanted to become a developer and starting, obviously, back starting becoming a Mac developer and then ultimately transitioning into iOS? What what's first sparked your interest? I guess, you know, I was just, I got my first Mac was uh, Mac Classic, actually. The, it's like looked like the old, you know, original Mac, mm-hmm. but it was kind of underpowered and uh, uh, for the time and, but fairly inexpensive, I guess, as far as Macs go. And I, you know, I loved it. I fell in love with it. I just, for some reason started, I don't know how I fell into the programming of it. I had, I had, um, kind of tinkered with, with friends who knew more about programming than I did, but I hadn't done that much until kind of high school, which is that kind of era. And I had a programming class and I just, I don't know, I just kind of fell into it and I got books and that's all I did at that point. And it's like, it felt like 24 hours a day, just reading old programming books and hacking on little projects and working on, you know, whatever little app ideas I had with friends and just, just kind of got into it. So I self-taught, I guess, basically. Um, but I, I did go to school after that, study computer science for a little while, but I just love the idea of creating things when you get the Mac, I don't know, the, you know, it's such a great operating system, even back in the old classic Mac days. And it was, it's things that are great like that and have great user interfaces. It makes me want to build something um, for that. It just, that's kind of how I fell into it. And then at some yeah. point you make a decision that, okay, well, I'm going to start not only creating something for myself, you know, using these tools and these skills that I've picked up, but I'm, I'm also, I'm going to throw it out there and then I'm going to throw it out there to the general public and I'm maybe going to start charging something for this. And, you know, maybe I'm going to try to start making a little, little money off of this. And so those are, those are pretty big leaps from, from turning it to just, you know, some, this thing that I'm interested in to, okay, well now this thing that's going to start supporting me and, and be part of my livelihood. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this, the, the, a lot of the apps I've worked on have always been kind of side business type stuff. It's like, it, I've worked on a lot of different things and even back even years ago, I'd throw out like maybe little freeware shareware things. Um, but it, it, there was a point where like one of the apps I don't make of support anymore. It was called WeTransfer. It was one of the Mac app that I, that I came up when the Wii launched and I was kind of excited about trying to integrate it with, with it somehow. And I, I was going to release it as freeware. And at the last second, literally like the day before I released it, I said, you know, why don't I charge like $5 for it? You know, what, what's the worst that could happen? 
And then literally the last second, like before I press the button on publish the web page or whatever, I said, eh, maybe I'll charge $9 for it. Anyway, I launched it. People liked it. I raised the price a little bit. And it's just, that's how sometimes I think that's how software happens is it, especially if it's a little side project like that, it's not, not needing it to feed my family or anything, pay the bills, just put it out there and see what happens. And it's surprisingly easy, easy even before the, the Mac app store and the iOS app store to release an app and charge for it and, and see if it resonates with people. It's really hard to ask for money for some of this stuff because you, I know in my experience, I'm, I'm going through the same thing right now. I've got this OmniFocus screencast. that's like hours I've been working on and I was going to give it away. And then I realized, you know, I've got like five weekends into this. And it's like, so do I charge money for it? Well, by the time the show publishes, it'll probably be out. And I think I'm going to end up asking for some money for it. But you, you totally should. But you, but you, you love doing it. It's like, it's, you, you don't think about how much time you put in it because it's something that you really enjoy and you want to share it. But then at the same time, you're thinking, well, I could have been doing other things, making money during the same time or being with my kids. And, but I, I totally get where you're coming from. I think it's really hard sometimes to ask for money for this stuff. Yeah, it is. And that was definitely just learning how to ask for money. And I'm still not good at this because I undervalue my work probably like every programmer does, you know, well, what's the big deal? We just type some stuff in and, you know, it's yeah. not worth anything, right? I shouldn't charge more than nine, nine cents for it, but it is something you have to learn. Uh, Jason Fried at 37 signals had a good article a couple of years ago, which I really liked. And it the, I can't remember the title exactly, but the idea was to, to be good at making money, you have to practice yeah, <laughs> over yeah. and over. So you have to ask for money. You have to be good at it and, and everything that comes, you know, along with that just over and over again until, you know, until it, it kind of works out, but it, it is, it is tough, but yeah, I mean, you put how many weekends you set into that and, and there's value. And also when you have actual paying customers, something changes, that's a lot different than just giving something away. Um, they expect things rightly uh, as paying customers, but it also, I don't know, there's kind of a, a feedback there where it just drives you to make the product better because you're hearing from people, they bought it, they're paying real money for it. They, they like it enough to tell you that they want more features yeah. or, or, or new content or whatever it is. And that doesn't exist in the same way with open source or freeware or anything like that. There's something special about actually having customers that are paying you money. And it's even harder now for the iOS developers because the climate is, seems like it's going through the sea change where everybody's going towards these free, these free models. Like uh, there's an app that I, I really like. It's a game and, you know, it's been out for a while. I bought it. I love it. Um, uh, and they came out with an update for it and they're charging $2 for this update. And everybody's going nuts because they have to pay money for it. And I'm thinking, what? what's the big deal? I mean, it's $2 and it's a really great update. So I, I don't really know what, I don't really understand it. It just seems to me that people are really strange about paying for apps. And I don't know who's at fault for this situation, but I, my heart goes out to these developers that are just really working hard on these apps. And, and uh, it's, you know, they get all this grief for charging a few bucks for an update. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Especially game developers, I feel for because it's the trend is so obvious to to free with an app purchase and everything that you know comes along with that. Unfortunately, and yeah, you charge try to charge two dollars, like you said, 
for some new <laughs> new levels or whatever, and and people will go crazy. Did, did yeah, I say that? The same- did I say that it's Monument Valley? Did yeah, I, say yeah, I, no, I did. could tell what you were talking yeah. about when yeah. you described it. I, um, I, but I, it's like at the same time you go into you know GameStop or something and they charge fifty dollars for Mario Kart. So it, it's weird. The gaming industry is weird. I, I I definitely feel for those developers on iOS. Well, and I also can't help but wonder: did did these people spend any time in video arcades when when they were kids? Because <laughs> man, I can I can blow two dollars in a video arcade in like thirty seconds. You know. My just, my just parents. Just popping the quarters. I can tell you, my parents. The couches when I grew up in my house were always spotless underneath. You know, and like all the like the cracks in between the cushions and the cars, those were always very clean. Because I was I was always on the hunt for another quarter. Yep, absolutely. I can't even imagine how much money I spent at arcades. I'm sure it was more than than what I've yeah. spent on uh, iOS apps in the last couple of years but anyway yeah. i mean it's it's kind of nuts to me but you know your your apps are more kind of in the productivity vein but at the same time it seems to me like there's pressure everywhere to get the prices down and i, I don't know it, it concerns me because katie and i are and and you as well i'm sure are friends with a lot of people that make their living making really wonderful applications that help people and charging money for them that's that's their business model you know i'm going to spend as much time as it takes to make something you know, help you become more productive and you pay me for it. And it seems like there's a lot of pressure on those people now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I productivity apps, I think is a good place to be. Like you said, I mean, my, my MS app tweet library is kind of a, kind of a weird app because it's a Twitter app, which you would think, you know, it needs to only be free or a couple of dollars. But the whole idea is like almost more productive, not productivity maybe, but like, you know, it's archiving and search and like more power user type features on top of Twitter. And that was always a challenge. I, when I launched the app a few years ago, it was, I charged $10, you know, and you know, people paid, some people paid for it, but other people said, you know, this is a joke, you know, uh, let me know when you've cut the price in half. And then this sounds really great. I'll, I'll buy it for $5. And I, yeah, I really held to that $10 for a long time. I think, I think two years, I didn't change the price. I was really stubborn about it, even when the app store was obviously going in a different direction. And eventually I did, you know, lower the price. And I think it's, it's $5 now, although I've, at one point it was like seven ninety nine. but even that it's, it's, it's just, it's really tough. And how do you have an app and try to market in such a way that people understand that there's real value and time-saving in the app that is much more than, than the few dollars they're going to spend. Yeah. And I use tweet library. I don't use it as my Twitter app. I use it as my Twitter archive and right. I find myself going in there all the time. It's a great app, by the way, everybody should go get it. Oh, um, but the, so what is a, in 2014, what kind of rig is a iOS slash Mac God. slash web developer using? So like Max and I mean, what, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what kind of equipment do you need to, to make all this stuff happen? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple now. I, I have, I've kind of been downsizing over the years and the reason, so right now my, my Mac is a MacBook pro retina 13 inch and that's it. I don't have any other Macs. I mean, I have Macs like lying in the corner that I don't use, but that's it. That's hundred percent of what I do development on. And a lot of developers will say that's insane because, you know, Xcode, you need a huge monitor and interface builder. You need a big monitor and stuff. And 
it's true that I might be more productive on a bigger monitor, but I, I really, I work at home, been working at home for years. And I also love working out of the house at coffee shops or wherever. And the, I feel like I, the flexibility of being able to work in different places and not have to change screen sizes. I just really like, and also you, I have to worry about do, sync and everything else that goes along with multiple machines. Then do you use uh, with the 13 inch screen? Do you use the full screen apps much? You know, some t- not that much actually. And it's not that I'm avoiding them, but I just haven't kind of worked those apps into, you know, it's just kind of my workflow. I mostly, I just have my windows really big, but they're mm-hmm. not actually in full screen mode. Yeah. I'm, I think Katie, I'm with I'm, you. I'm, I'm right there. I've got a 13 inch in my case, MacBook air. And I just, I've never gotten into full screen apps and I've never really gotten to switching desktops. And I, I know mm-hmm. that I should, and maybe that's because I'm more of a mouse user and not so much a trackpad user. So I don't do all the gestury stuff, but hmm. I think yeah, I, I don't I, use the, I don't use the desktops either really in switching. I mean, like, so rewind like several years or even more. I had two like uh, 23 inch cinema displays, you know, on my Mac pro or whatever. And I liked that. At least I thought I liked it, but what ended up happening is like one of the monitors was like my real work. And then one was like email and Twitter or something. Yeah. And, gotta- and they would, I found it was actually more distracting uh, to have, to use them in that way. And so I downsized to like a 24 inch um, display for a couple of years. And then eventually I just went direct just to the 13 inch MacBook only. And, you know, yeah, again, I would love some more screen kind of, but not at the sacrifice of having to lug something big around or, or switch screen sizes every day. I, I, I'm starting to believe that I'm just a weirdo when it comes to the full screen mode. Cause on my laptop, I'm using a 15 inch laptop and I use full screen all the time because I just find that gesture forefinger swipe up off the trackpad. And then it shows me, you know, a list of all my screens. And if you have them in full screen, it labels them by app. And so I just gesture four fingers up and then tap on the one that I want to jump to. I find that really easy to get by with, but I've been talking to a lot of my geek friends lately and they all just look at me like I'm from Mars or something when I tell them I use full screen apps. So I I think it might be me. I think it might Um, be me. When you describe that, it makes sense. It makes me want to try them again. I, I, I can't tell if I don't use my Mac that way because it just doesn't fit how I work or if I just haven't stuck with it enough to get used to it. Yeah, you need something like drop zone or unclutter, some way to kind of like a storage space for files when you do that. That's the one thing, you know, but I don't know. I, to me, when I have multiple screens on one desktop, trying to get between them to me takes more time than that little swipe. But hey, before we continue, I want to take a minute and talk about our first sponsor. And we're really happy to welcome back this sponsor after some time as Pixelmator is back at the Mac Power Users. And uh, I know that they have been working very hard because we've been talking to them over the last year about what they've been doing. And if you didn't know it already, you probably should because they, they, they were at an Apple event. That was pretty cool when one of our sponsors is featured at an Apple event. Pixelmator released Pixelmator for iPad. And this app is just incredible for image manipulation on the iPad. I cannot get over how powerful it is. Uh, So you all know about Pixelmator on the Mac. It's on the iPad now, and it gives you everything you need to create, edit, and enhance your images. It lets you work seamlessly between the Mac and the iPad, and even work effortlessly with people who use Adobe Photoshop. Uh, I've been using it. I love it. Um, It takes full advantage of the latest iOS technologies. 
if you're on an iPad Air 2, this thing will scream and it gives you speedy and powerful tools that let you touch up and enhance images. I'm using it on my iPad Air and it's fantastic. Uh, not only can you uh, manipulate images, you can also draw or paint on them or you can apply effects and you can create advanced composition. It's, it's all very simple. Uh, and once your images are ready, you can share them right there uh, with the whole world. So you get started with a bunch of templates they've got built in. They've got retouching tools so you can correct wrinkles or zits or flaws or whatever you've got on your screen. You can take care of it. And the, the fun part is it's on your iPad. So like if you're at a family event, you can not only just capture your images right there, you can also make them beautiful. Uh, you can combine different tools and effects for an endless number of ways to refine your images. And it's loaded with a bunch of great effects. Uh, it's advanced imaging. It's got layers and selections. And you can open and save images in multiple formats, including PSD, JPEG, PNG, PDF, and a bunch of others. And they've got iCloud sharing, which, you know, that's pretty awesome. How do you do that? Um, so it's all built in. It's for the iPad. It's Pixelmator, like we had for the Mac and now on the iPad, and it's just as awesome. And it takes full advantage of the 64-bit architecture and all the other great stuff that you can have. They also have a version for the Mac, but this this spot, I want you to go take a look at Pixelmator on the iPad, and all of that is just $4.99, which I cannot believe. So it's an insta buy go check it out pixelmator let them know you heard about it from us and as the holidays approach this is the time to make your images awesome on your ipad thanks pixelmator for sponsoring the show so we've talked you know about your mac setup and the fact that you've got this 13 inch macbook pro with with retina display but um, as a developer i would imagine that you use xcode quite a bit and that you're you're in and out of that but what other tools are are you using primarily um, both for your day job and your in your indie development job or your development jobs at all? So a mix of mostly standard stuff, but yeah, certainly Xcode. Um, the BB Edit is kind of a long time, you know, fixture of my Mac for years, and I've gone back and forth with other text editors for various work. You know, because Xcode is certainly the best you know, for Mac and iOS development, but there's a whole bunch of other, you know, web development and text processing and searching files and diffing and all these other things that uh, I use BB Edit for. And um, I've, I've, like I said, I've kind of tried some other things in the past, like TextMate for a little while and uh, Coda from Panic uh, for a little while, but I always kind of come back to BB Edit because I can use one tool for a bunch of different things. And BB uh, it's like, like the, it's like the battleship of web development for the Mac. It's kind of amazing because it's just it's it's one of the very very few apps. It was really only a few that made that transition from classic Mac to Mac OS ten, and just kept iterating, kept getting better and better and better. And it's you know it's a great app. I'm using it all the time. It's still the best for opening like giant, you know, XML files or something crazy like that. And uh, so it, it's great stuff. I use that a lot. And I use uh, so a lot of work I do with, you know, you know, uh, GitHub and source control um, stuff. And lately I've been using Tower uh, for all that. 
And I like it. I, I've switched to it recently. I was using an app called Gitbox for a long time, which I really loved. And uh, it wasn't really supported much anymore, new versions. And so I ended up switching away. But I really liked the workflow with that. So a lot of, a lot of seems what I do day to day is, you know, checking in source and, you know, working with other folks or updating code. And so those, uh, I use those a lot. And uh, actually standard uh, standardized a lot on GitHub lately because I was using other source control uh, hosting, but everyone these days uses GitHub, seems like, right. you know, and so it's just kind of easier to go with the flow sometimes. Yeah. Now, in terms of planning, when you're when you're programming on iOS and Xcode, I know that they've Apple has added a lot of tools to help you kind of start the initial planning stages of app development. Is that where you do it still for uh, iOS and Mac apps, or do you start somewhere else? I mostly start there. I I don't. I, so I mean, I depends on the app. Like in terms of design, I was still kind of a big fan of taking out a notepad and just sketching quick ideas and try to capture the UI before turning into code or before going into Xcode or interface builder and kind of laying it out. So I do that sometimes um, if, unless I'm working with another designer and, but the generally I love just kind of diving in and getting down to actually building the app. I I'm really kind of impatient and I don't go too long or I get frustrated if I go too long before I can actually see and run something like on my phone. Yeah. Um, so I, I dive in fairly quick and try to just do a first pass so that I see something real. And until you kind of see something real, it's like, it's hard to really know. You can kind of guess at what's going to work, but until you can play around with it and tap on it and kind of interact with it, it's, that's a whole different world. And at, terms of actually understanding how the user is going to use an app. It seems to me one of the, one, it seems to me one of the biggest changes for app developers is that the Apple iOS platform has always been a fixed screen. I mean, for a long time, we had a three and a half inch phone with X pixels by Y pixels. And so everybody was making everything pixel perfect. And then now we've got to the point where Apple has just basically given that up and said, look, guys, we're going to have different size screens. Uh, we're adding tools to Xcode. You're going to have to make your app work in different environments. Yeah. And with the iPhone six plus too, I think, I mean, that's practically an iPad. And so I think that the, the old days of doing pixel perfect designs for the phone and then shipping a separate app for the iPad that is also completely custom and has background textures and all sorts of things just for the iPad. That's, that's kind of over. I think the, the, the obvious point that Apple is trying to push us in is universal apps that work on every device and they scale up nicely. And a lot of times, yeah, it's like the iPhone six plus is, I don't know if I can't remember if you guys have one or not, but I mean, it's so David did for like an hour and a half for an hour and a half. Okay. That's <laughs> for a week. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of miss it, Katie, you know, it, it's still not a difficult question for me, but anyway, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, but it's like, it's so big and it's, it's again, it's almost an iPad. And so the, the types of interfaces that you'd want on that, it's not a big step to say, I'm going to do an iPad app too. And so really, I think apps nowadays, um, for the most part, should be thinking about working on all these devices. And like you said, scaling up and Apple's pushing that and they're making the tools better. It's certainly a challenge, I guess, for developers and especially working with a designer maybe who is just thinking about the iPhone, you know, because you'll have to convert that into 
code and layout and constraints in the UI that make sense for multiple um, devices. I'm working on a project for a client right now, which is kind of like that. The designer has done an amazing job, laid out the, the iPhone screens, and they're all perfect. But the pixels, it's all, you know, the iPhone 5 screen size, right? And so taking that and making it match that design, but also thinking about how it's going to lay out on the iPhone 6 Plus, iPhone 6, landscape mode, portrait, et cetera. You, know, you kind of need to be thinking about that from the start. Yeah, it's a lot more work, and uh, it's, it's expected. So you're just yeah. going to have to deal with it, apparently. Right. That's true. <laughs> now, Katie, I interrupted you early. What were you going to ask? Yeah, well, I was I was going to ask, and, and I do want to get back a little bit to um, to how you work on, on projects with other people. But I was going to ask, when you, how does an app start for you? You know, does it start with a problem that you have to be solved or someone says something and you think, oh, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. I mean, how, how, how does that origin of an app come to you from the, the spark of that might be a good idea to you just sit down on your computer and, and you start banging out something in Xcode because it sounds like you jump very quickly into Xcode because you want to see something physical as physical as these things are on, on a computer screen, but you, but you want to see something in some kind of uh, operating model pretty quickly. Do you have to let that stew or do you, do you then create it and then destroy it and then create it again? Or how does that process work? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's, it depends on the app. And I think some of my apps have started life and kind of ended up shipping in a very similar, like the UI didn't change that much. And it was the basic idea for the app was there at the beginning and, you know, through to 1.0 to 2.0. Tweet library is kind of like that that we talked about. I mean, it's the, the original idea was just, I wanted to be able to preserve and archive tweets. I mean, pretty simple. It wasn't very easy to do because Twitter in their API and in their website was just very limiting in how many tweets you could go back to. And it's still, you know, years later, very limiting. And it's probably how, worse what, now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's it. And so it's, it's something I wanted to kind of try to solve that. You can have your own personal archive of tweets, you can search them, you can collect them and organize them and all that. And so that was a very kind of, um, straightforward like problem that I was trying to solve. And that app, you know, I feel like it's improved a lot over the years, but that core kind of premise has, is always, has always been the same. And the UI has been very similar. It's been updated for iOS seven and whatnot, but it's basically the same, um, as it, as it started life, you know, years ago, uh, other apps are like, there's an app I worked on last year with a friend of mine, Jonathan Hayes called sunlit. And we had this problem where we were, you know, we were out at a conference and we were taking pictures and kind of enjoying the city and, and whatnot. And we wanted to like share photos. And this is like sharing photos is something that a million apps try to solve. You know, Apple apps try to solve that. A bunch of different third-party apps try to solve that. But we wanted kind of a particular uh, spin on it. And so we decided to build an app for it. And this app, it started with a problem about like syncing photos and sharing photos and, and kind of curating photos and sharing them. Um, but they, it started without any kind of UI at all in terms of what we thought we were trying to build. And so the first prototype of that was very quick, you know, it was, didn't take long to build something that, that was functional, but the app that ended up shipping was unrecognizable, right? I mean, it definitely went through several iterations of redesign and this isn't going to work and we need to change this part. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about how the process works for collaborating with others on apps. But before we do, I want to take a quick break 
and talk about our next sponsor for this episode, uh, and that is the folks over at Automatic. And Automatic is both an accessory as well as an iOS app. And it's an auto accessory that talks to your car's onboard computer system and uses your smartphone's GPS and data plan to upgrade your car's capabilities. So, for example, I've got a 1997 Toyota. Uh, Automatic works with uh, cars in the United States. Just about any gasoline engine car sold since 1996, so my car uh, qualifies. Um, and it works with the iPhone 5 and above. And what it will do is it will give you feedback on your driving to let you know when you're braking too rough, when you're speeding, when you have rapid acceleration. And at the end of the week, it will calculate your drive score and let you know how you're doing. By the way, David, 98 last week. I got a good job. Keep it up for my automatic. Well, I, got, I got a 96. You beat me. <laughs> I did. I did. Too, too many accelerations. Oh, see, braking's my problem. I've never had acceleration, yeah. but braking's my problem. But anyway, but it gives you feedback on how you're driving. So, you know, is, is acceleration your problem? Is braking your problem? Uh, and it will also keep track of your trips and allow you to create a timeline to display detailed information about your week, including where you're going, how much time you're spending in the car, uh, and where. So if you need to keep a trip log or if you need to keep track of your mileage, it will do things like that. Uh, but it will also do some pretty important things, too, like crash alert that can detect uh, many types of serious crashes. And if you've got it activated, agents from automatic will call you to see if you're OK uh, and even report the accident to local authorities and notify your loved ones if they can't get in touch with you. You can view the information both on your iPhone uh, as well as on the web, and the possibilities with the automatic are endless because you can connect it to an If This Then That channel and just really go crazy. And brand new, just released last month, they've got a new License Plus program that allows parents to keep an eye on their new teenage drivers, but yet without being a backseat driver. So they can set goals together, stay in touch, reward progress. And it's a way to kind of let the teen feel comfortable with having an automatic in their car and have a level of privacy and privileges around driving, but also let the parents know how they're doing and when they need to step in. Um, if you are interested in Automatic, uh, you can check them out at Automatic.com. And when you're ready to buy, go to store.automatic.com and you can save 20% off the purchase of an Automatic by using coupon code MACPOWER2014. And again, that's at store.automatic.com, MACPOWER2014. And thanks to Automatic for their kind support of the show. I want to add one thing to that, Katie, is that the crash alert that they have is really useful. I Now we have automatics and everybody in the house. And if my daughter or my wife has a crash, they're going to call me right away. Autom it's, it's set up where automatic can detect the car has been in a crash and they can contact loved ones, which to me is worth the price of admission alone. Yep. Anyway, um, so we you're doing all this development work, you're podcasting, you're writing on your blog, and you're kind of an impressive guy, man, in that you can kind of pull all this off. How are you doing it? <laughs> I don't know. Thank you. But I, I don't know. Sometimes it's it's hard. I mean, I mentioned loving switching between uh, multiple types of projects, and uh, that's fun, but it's also really challenging. I think part of the way I can get away with it is I just try to simplify everything as much as possible. So I don't have a lot of kind of variety in the different tools I use or in, um, I don't know, simple things like, uh, you know, my servers for my web services like TweetMarker are all set up exactly the same. Um, you know, just the, the 
the, the I try to standardize, like I said, like in version control and source, like try to do all that the same way. Try to, if I'm doing, if I'm doing um, some sort of task and it's split across multiple services, whether it's hosting or different apps or, or whatever, I just try to simplify it as much as possible. And so, I don't know, that, that helps me. That helps me get by. Yeah. And, and, well, I can understand. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you approach some practical problem with the development process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just simplifying things and just also just, I don't know, probably maybe, maybe just like I said, just diving in, writing code and shipping stuff, maybe sometimes too early, but always that just kind of uh, a urge to actually get stuff out in front of people. And that, that generally pushes me through the hard points of where it's easy to kind of give up and say, it's not going to ship or it's not good enough. I'm pretty good about pushing through those and actually getting something out the door. That's so much the challenge really, I think is, is pushing the publish button. Yeah. Yep. Uh, It's terrifying, right? I always feel it is. Yep. I even feel that when I um, publish a blog post sometimes, if it's like the short blog posts, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cavalier about sometimes, but the, uh, you know, like a longer one, it's like, okay. And my finger always hovers over the button and for no reason, except that I'm just a little scared to share it out there. You just never know what's going to happen once you push that button. Yeah, exactly. I think for things like that, it's just the routine getting getting used to hitting that button every single day. The longer I go between like writing a blog post or shipping an app or whatever it is, uh, the harder it, it is to do. And yeah. if you get in that routine of every day, it just, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, this is what I do. I click the button and I publish something. When I, when I did the first self-published book, I was terrified because I was convinced I was going to be like George Lucas. And, you know, like when he made the prequels, he didn't have anybody looking over his shoulder and I was going to completely screw it up, <laughs> but the, uh, Hey, it works out, but, but you also collaborate and, and how do you pull that off, uh, with your development process? I, most of it is pretty standard stuff. I mean, I, I've been working at home now, um, for like over 13 years, uh, for, for a company. And I've, so I've always worked remotely, uh, with folks. And so I guess I've just kind of, I don't know, kind of fallen into a pretty good routine of, of doing it. Um, but it's fairly standard. I mean, sort getting source code sorted out, I think is the biggest thing picking how you're going to collaborate with someone, whether it's something like GitHub or some other service. Hopefully it's not like emailing uh, files around, but standardizing on some kind of services, that's the biggest part. And then taking care of the other stuff, how are you going to track bugs? How are you going to communicate chat? Yeah. How about about that communication? How do you handle that in the programming development environment? And it's a mix. I mean, I've used a bunch of different bug tracking uh, tools. Uh, GitHub, Fogbugs is what I've been using for some of my independent projects. And just having having some kind of bug system, I think, solves a lot of those problems of keeping track of things and being able to assign something to someone else you're working with saying, I need you to work on this. I need this graphic or I need this code or tell me when you're done with this, just that kind of back and forth, having a system that's structured that handles that I think is super important. Is it possible for uh, app developers these days to do the whole enchilada? I mean, it seems like quite often graphic, you have graphics people and you have programmers and maybe you have a web guy too. Although in your case, it sounds like 
you don't need a web guy. You're doing that yourself. Yeah, for better or worse. I mean, I, I could really use a web guy some days when I'm, I should be working on something else and I instead have to, you know, SSH into the server and restart something or, or fix something. I could use someone that handled that, but it is, it is possible. It's, I think it's becoming more difficult because the, the quality of apps and the app store is so high now is very difficult for one person to have a killer design and a fast, smooth app and, and an icon. That's, it's very, just very difficult for one person to do everything in the past. I have been okay with, I have a, I'm okay depending on the app. I'm not, I'm not a designer in that I could build, um, a, you know, I don't know, a tweet bot or a fantastical or something that's like very, just very well designed and polished. And like that, that kind of app really needs a dedicated designer, but a lot of apps, especially on iOS seven can get by with something fairly simple where you don't need a full-time designer. But even so, you you still probably need someone that does the icon, especially on the Mac, where the quality of icons is just people expect it to be a lot, a lot better than just like a little rounded rect, you know, cropped photo or something on, on iOS that some people get by with. So I don't know, some of my apps, I've done everything except the icon. That's the only thing I've farmed out to someone else. But it just depends on the app. Well, thinking a little bit higher level, when when you work with someone, when you collaborate with someone on an app, first off, how do you start that relationship? How does somebody find you and say, uh, you know what, I, I need some help with iOS development. I've, I've got this project that I want to work on, but I don't have the tools necessarily to do it. I mean, do they, so how do you, number one, get connected with those folks? And then what's what's the division of duties and how is that determined? Uh, it's funny because I haven't actually done a lot of collaborating with with uh, on iOS apps with people, so it's kind of a funny. I mean, I, the way I just I just talked a few minutes ago, it sounds like I've done more than I actually have. <laughs> but on this, on one app that I mentioned, um, it was something that you know a friend referred me to, um, f- you know, a company that needed something. And uh, in the other app I mentioned that worked on last year was just collaborating, just me and a friend working on the app, and it was it came out of the idea of problem we wanted to solve. And so it just made sense for us to work on the app together. But in turn, I mean, I, I think a lot of apps actually start that way is, you know, friends or, you know, somebody that knows somebody else. And, and it's not like I have an idea and I'm looking for a developer because that doesn't always end very well. I'm but sure it more... ends badly most of the time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah. I had somebody in my office last week that says, I've got this great idea for an app. I'm like, oh, great. Are you a programmer? Well, no. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, but I can hire that, right? And I'm like, sure, okay, well, good luck with that, you know. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny uh, kind of subculture of all these people who who have someone develop an app who don't really have a lot of experience with it, and they get somebody who who they you know they contract with a developer, probably picked by whoever had the lowest bid. And I hear about it at, even at Max Sparky, people trying to get me to write about their stuff. And they're like, well, hey, I spent $10,000 on this app, and I don't understand why nobody's buying it. But then, you know, they really had no idea what kind of design they wanted or what problem they were trying to solve. And there's this, this, there's this feeling out there among non-developers that this is something you can just do and get rich. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not really sure exactly how it all got started, but it, it's still out there. And there's there's this group of people that don't know anything, a lick of programming, but they've got like a kind of a collection of apps. 
And I've never heard any of them that are making any money at it. Yeah, the App Store attracted so many people. Um, and if and overall, I think it's been great because just it's so nice to have a platform that is has so many developers and so people excited about it. But at the same time, there's certainly that gold rush kind of mentality where a lot of people thought that an idea, and it's not just the app store. You see this in software all over the place, but where they thought the idea was the special thing, they just needed someone to code it. And of course the truth is, you know, the idea, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter that much. It's the execution of the idea and all the other things that go along with building the app that actually really matter a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I think some of the best apps are, you certainly see successes where, where there's one person who wasn't a programmer kind of leading the project and having the idea and coordinating and doing project management, doing a lot of work and building this app, even if they didn't write a line of code. But I think a lot of other apps, it's more of a collaboration where you're, they're peers more than one person saying, I've got the idea, just go build it exactly like I say. And they're <laughs> collaborating and throwing ideas off of each other and making it better. So tell me, um, putting aside Xcode and the, the nuts and bolts of creating an app, there's, you're also a businessman when you start getting, or a business person as you get into this, because now all of a sudden you've got customers and you've got to correspond with, you know, questions with customers. And I'm sure you've got people who have support requests and you've got to manage, uh, the money accounts and you've got all these things that you need to do that are unrelated to sitting down and digging in an X code. Um, how difficult was it to wrap your head around that? And, and how are you doing? I mean, what are you using to, to pull that off? Yeah, it's, I actually really enjoy some of that, which I'm most kind of surprised by. And, you know, some days I do a better job than others. I, for the longest time I did all the support email just in Apple's mail app. And, you know, I did that for years. And of course the problem is you just lose track of stuff, you know, or you, you can't, yeah. it's a general email problem, but it's even worse with customer support because there are some things that you really absolutely need to reply to. And you know, every customer deserves at least a quick reply that you got it and you're thinking about the feature or, you know, thanks for the bug report. And so eventually years later, I finally realized this wasn't going to work anymore. And uh, I switched to Zendesk for support email and I tried a few things and I had mentioned Fogbooks for, for bugs earlier, and that does kind of support email. And there's a lot of systems that do this, but so far I've been pretty happy with Zendesk for managing uh, is, support. Is, in, is Zendesk a subscription model? Yep. It's a web app and it's only a web app, I think. So I, I, I just use the web app. And so when um, I have email come into my support email address, I forward it, you know, it's automatically forwarded to Zendesk and I actually still see a copy in my, inbox, but I just kind of ignore it. And I go to Zendesk and I reply to everything there and I manage that. And it's just geared toward the types of things you would need for support. So obviously tracking what you need to reply to, but also different states, like if something has been solved, if it's kind of pending, you doing some more research. And so kind of a more of a richer email experience that's specifically um, for support. And it also does a pretty good job of getting you can hook into like twitter and whatnot so if someone replies to your like business twitter account that will feed into zendesk so you have like one place that you can kind of manage all the support and there's been a couple bumps with that like there was one 
point, it's so configurable for better or worse. And one point I configured it incorrectly and people weren't getting email replies for a month. And they kept you know emailing and saying, hey, why aren't you replying to this? And yeah. I said, no, I did reply. And I just, I felt terrible. And of course that was, that was a major mistake on my part that wasn't help the, the, the app being, uh, being, uh, kind of easy to mistakenly configure. But, uh, but overall I've been pretty happy with that. And I think it's improved the, the way I reply to customers and track support. I once, I once had an Apple mail rule where I used an or instead of an and, mm-hmm. and, um, <laughs> We've and all like, been there. I don't, I don't understand why I haven't got much Max Sparky email in the last couple of weeks. And of course it was just all auto archiving it as it was arriving because of that, that rule. That's but, a you know, feature Kate, sometimes. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we've got um, we've had several app developers come on and talk about Zendesk and how they use it. And it really solves this email problem for them. And the interesting thing I was just thinking is, I don't know anybody that is a non-programmer or app developer using Zendesk. And I wonder what kind of applications you could use Zendesk for outside of the, you know, supporting an app market. I bet that it might be something we could use in other ways, too. I'm going to look into that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You, in theory, you could use it for for general email. You you do what you'd want to customize it a lot. So because by default, it puts a lot of junk in the email, which I don't like. And one of the reasons I I resisted moving to a system like that is I like responding to a customer and it being a personal kind of exchange. And you know, you're you're not that customer is not emailing a. 500 person company, right? They're emailing me. I wrote the app and I'm replying to them. And so I like having just a regular email signature and, you know, just just a normal email. And when you move to a bigger system, usually they'll insert like a, you know, support ticket, you know, number or URL in the the email somewhere and the subject. And I resisted some of that and I was able to customize and get rid of some of that, that I thought was a little bit, a little bit too much, but that, I guess that would be the only thing that would maybe jump out as if you're not doing support email, making sure that that's okay, that that sort of extra kind of framework around the email is okay. Now, do you use text expander snippets in Zendesk or do they have some other method for I use dealing combination. with frequency? Yeah, I love text expander and especially on iOS, I think with the new version, it's going to be, it's going to be really, really handy um, to have where you have more, Finally, you know, Apple's letting developers hook into this stuff. Um, Zendesk does have uh, their own kind of snippets. I don't currently use the Zendesk ones. Uh, I probably should. They're, they're fairly well integrated and they seem like they work. I I don't automate some of that as much as I should. And the original, I, <laughs> my original reasoning was pretty terrible. Is like just that I felt like if I actually had to type everything out, it would... May, like if someone submits a bug report and I type an answer to them uh, or explain a feature that's confusing and then a hundred people do it, I have to type it every time. And it really drives home the point that like, I really need to fix this because I'm typing all this. And that's yeah. <laughs> not, a, that's not a great reason. Um, to now, not, if, you could, <laughs> if you just didn't have to type it, you could actually stop and fix it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's ex- exactly. That's the other, the other side of that is I wasted time typing that in that I could have just been fixing. Um, the yeah. book. So it, it took me a while to, to get into sort of automating more of that and just making that faster. And I'm still typing things that I should not be typing. I should be handing off to text expander to do more of. Now those fill in snippets there, they're a real help. Yeah. That's yeah. one of those things that's always on my list to get better at. And I, I feel like 
as a general rule, I, I don't automate things as much as I should. I, the other day I had a bunch of, you know, images where I should have maybe automated something to resize them or something and did some kind of batch thing. And I ended up just tediously going in and applying the same thing to all of them. And I, I do that a lot. And unfortunately I don't catch myself until sometimes too late that I've, I've wasted all that time. But on the other yeah. hand, sometimes you can spend a lot of time automating something and way more time than it takes to uh, just do the thing repeatedly for, for two years straight every week. And it's hard to know sometimes where that line is. There was a great uh, XKCD comic uh, chart. I don't know if you ever saw it about automating yeah. and it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's I, lo- like- I, I need to like print that out and look at it and see, cause it does a great job of like, you know, if you do this every week and you spend 30 seconds on it or something, yeah, for five years, it would, you're better off spending two hours or whatever it is, uh, just automating the thing. And yeah. I need to so, use that as a reference. Yeah. So the idea is you look at how long the task takes and how often you do it. And then how long is it going to take to push whatever buttons you need to automate it? And then you compare the two and figure out, you know, how long does it take for me to get the time back it takes to create it? And that gives you an idea. The trouble is, number one, you're never really sure of all those variables. It always takes longer to create the the automation than you thought it would. And number two, you really know never know how much you're going to need in the future until the future happens. And in my case, number three is I just like the experience of automating it. I like to go down that little you know hole and play with that you know for a while. And so mm-hmm. I just do it anyway. But, but that's worth something. Some more, what I said that's worth something. Oh yeah. It's entertainment for me. You know, everybody's got their, you know, their, their entertainment. That's one for me as weird as that sounds. Um, well, there's some more stuff I want to talk about with respect to just kind of the business side of this. But before we do that, um, I wanted to talk about our sponsor, the Omni group and in particular Omni Graffle. Uh, we've been talking a lot lately about OmniFocus because they've got these great updates out, but guess what? Uh, they're not asleep up there at the Omni group. They've been working on Omni Graffle too, and they just released version 6.1 for the Mac. It's got better compatibility with Yosemite. It's got new stroke options, fill effects, blending modes. They, you know, they just continue to make this better. And OmniGraffle really is the application that set me free for my graphics, my inner uh, graphics develop, or was it my inner, what do you call it? The graphics guy. You know, I'm the, my inner graphics guy gets exposed through OmniGraffle because they make it so easy to put little bits of uh, graphic on the screen, move them around, and it just, everything ma- magnetically attaches and just all the stuff that I could never figure out with the more complicated graphics applications comes to me very naturally in OmniGraffle. I made my Christmas card this year in OmniGraffle because I just needed an application that I could do some simple graphics in. And they've got all that stuff there. So you could do like a design an electrical system or put together a family tree or map out a class you're going to give. For artists and designers, they've got uh, data mapping and ways to put things on the screen. It's, it's so great. And I use it all the time, both personally and in the day job. And the fun part is I have these graphics I make in OmniGraffle and I put them in closing statements as a lawyer or I put them in the Christmas card and everybody always thinks that I'm paying somebody to do this. And in reality, I'm just making it on OmniGraffle for my Mac. They, uh, It's just a, a fantastic application that can solve graphics needs for the rest of us. And the Omni Group continues to support it. They've got, you know, auto layout features now. They've got blending modes and file sharing. They've got this thing called Stencil Town. And Katie, have you gone to Stencil Town yet? Is that kind of like Funky Town? 
It's kind of like Funky Town, but it's for stencils. That's so, even better. You know, uh, so OmniGraffle has this feature where you can get a set of stencils and just drag things in. They've got them as icons for Manton. They've got like a, a user uh, interface elements. So you could drag like an iPhone screen and then grab the buttons and put them on and just start arranging things. Uh, they've got them for so many. They've got boxes and they've got little stick figures. So if you're making a keynote presentation, you want to have a representation of a person. There's just hundreds and hundreds of these things that have been developed by users and they've got stencil town you can find it on their website and you can go download all these stencils and just like you know add features to omnigraffle with it it's it's all very easy to use and can make you out there no matter who you are put together some really useful graphics very easily and very quickly so so go check it out uh, they've got different versions of the application and this is one where i, I recommend they sell it in the app store i i recommend you buy it uh, directly from Omni Group itself because they're going to have an update at some point. When I got my update, I was able to get the upgrade price because I bought it from them directly. And they have a standard version. It's $99. They've got a pro version that's got some more uh, bells and whistles that are going to help you if you really need you know, the super tools. And they've also got an iPad version. So, and all that stuff works together with OmniSync because it's the Omni Group. They've got all that figured out. And if you've been finding a need lately to make some excellent graphics in your life, this is the one. So go check out OmniGraffle from the Omni Group. And if you've already got it, head over and download the 6.1 update right now because you're really going to like it. Thanks, Omni Group. So, Manton, i got to ask you a question. Uh, you've done a lot of development for Twitter-type apps between you know, TweetMarker and library apps and all of these other things. But yet I can't help but notice that you no longer use Twitter anymore. You're you're a big uh, proponent of, of app.net. So tell me about that. Sure. Yeah, that is a funny, funny, weird thing about my apps right now. And I'm, I'm still working on these Twitter apps. And yet I have not personally posted a Twitter in over two years now. And uh, it's it's um, I got real frustrated with Twitter's uh, kind of very developer hostile uh kind of attitude and some of their policies. Yeah. You and know, they've got a new mission statement. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's quite clear exactly yeah, what it is. Now. It's a mouthful. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, did, you, did you know their mission statement doesn't fit in a tweet? I just, I just uh, thought that was kind of awesome. Yeah. That's hilarious. They, they really should fix that. Um, the, uh, so there, there was a string of things that they did that kind of annoyed everybody. Um, and at one point they just became, uh, annoying enough to me where I felt like I should just kind of do this like little mini protest and not post anymore, which was really difficult to do because I was on Twitter, you know, near the very, very beginning. And it was, uh, I loved it, you know, and I met people through Twitter and I thought that the service was just new and kind of groundbreaking and just great work. And unfortunately that feeling kind of faded over the years. And so, yeah, I, I decided to stop. I stopped posting, and but I still I love the apps that I built, and my customers love them and still buy them, and so I still work on them and make them better. And as an independent business, I still use Twitter. You know, like I said, if someone you know replies to one of my my business you know accounts or whatever for Tweet Library, I'll reply to that. Um, because they deserve an answer, right? They they shouldn't have to be be a subject to my my kind of uh, 
uh, ranting about whether, uh, <laughs> what I feel about Twitter, Twitter, the business, but, um, it's been, it's been interesting. I, I still, two years later, I still kind of have mixed feelings about what the right decision was there, but I'm kind of sticking to it. And, um, it's actually, I think it's been great because it's allowed me to, there's certainly disadvantages, uh, both in just not being as connected with people and also for my business, but I think it's been good in terms of focus and, I don't check Twitter 20 times a day. So I, I really do. I feel like I do have more focus and time to, to work on other things. And you mentioned app.net that's kind of fading away now, but I was a huge fan of it and the, the work that they were doing at the beginning. And so one of my apps that I mentioned sunlit for photos is built completely on the app.net uh, backend infrastructure. Cause it just, they have a really amazing API for building apps that don't look anything like Twitter. And uh, so I was a huge fan of that. That's kind of fading away and, and that's kind of unfortunate. Um, but n I don't think I ever would have built that app, you know, that, that worked with app.net and I wouldn't have kind of focused on some of the things I'm focusing on if I hadn't of stopped posting on Twitter. So it was kind of you know, bittersweet and kind of a mistake in some ways, but on the other, the other ways, I think it was a kind of a, a powerful kind of way for me to just take an assessment of what I'm working on and what I'm focusing on. So what are you, where are you going next? If app.net fades into the abyss of the internet. So I think the next step is microblogging that you control. So more, I think that the, we've tried the centralized services and Twitter will be around forever and it'll be huge and, and grow. But I feel like we need to return to the kind of the old web of you're posting more on your own site. And so that's what I've been doing lately is I have on my blog, I have regular blog posts, but I also have these kind of micro blog short posts, you know, hundred characters. Yeah. yeah. And I want to do more of that so that if these services go away or they <laughs> upset me and I decide to, you know, get upset and leave or something, um, that I have my content. Right. And so that's uh, actually the theme of a lot of my apps is this archiving and searching and controlling your own content and having a copy. And so the best way to do that is just post it to your own site first. And that's, that's the kind of the direction I'm going in right now with my own stuff. And I hope, I hope to build apps that encourage other people to do that too. Cause I think it's really nice to be able to post to your own site before Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. You know that when uh, Google plus first came about, uh, some pe some friends of ours told me that I should be posting my Max Bargy content to Google plus. And I always felt like, you know, that's great, but I would rather own my website and it be my stuff than somebody else's stuff. And I, I can definitely see that. Although I have to admit, I get so much uh, joy out of Twitter, just the communication with people. And I mean, for me and Katie, I, I know you feel this way too. I don't get to make my full-time, you know, job playing around with Max and talking to all my geek friends. I've got a kind of a day job. And that's not as fun as this is to me. And, and having Twitter where I can connect with those people, even when I'm at work really makes it bearable some days, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to take anything away from people who love Twitter because it, it is great and powerful at what it does. Um, the, I think the funny thing is like, can we recreate that eventually in the kind of the open web? Like, can you, can you build 
a kind of a network system of websites and, and such that provide what you're talking about and that connection to other people without a completely centralized service like Twitter. And it's hard, but I think it's possible. And the reason I think it's possible is I remember before Twitter, you know, I, I, like you think back pre-Twitter and it seems so long ago, like you, you think like, how did we meet anybody? Like, how did I know what people were doing? And it, it did happen anyway, right? There were blogs and yeah. discussion mm -hmm. lists or forums, whatever. And it, somehow before Twitter, we still connected to people and and knew about people's work so that when we met them at a conference or something, we're like, oh, I love your writing on this or I love the app you're working on. And so I think, you know, it, maybe it's far in the future, but I think eventually there will be kind of like a post Twitter world. But uh, but maybe not. I may be I may be off the mark. I hope I sure hope so, because <laughs> I, I read that mission statement the other day and afterwards I was thinking, do these do the people who wrote this, do they actually use Twitter? Because it it doesn't even seem like the same service to me. It's like yeah. if they, if they succeed, I'm not even sure I belong on Twitter anymore. So I, I, I sure hope that there's options out there. Yeah. That's the, the problem that they're going to run into. And I, I don't want to completely turn this into a rant against Twitter, but they, the problem is that they, uh, so most of us, you know, like I don't, I'm not on Twitter, my personal account anymore, but like most folks I know use like Twitterific or Tweetbot or something. And so they have like a preserved experience from like the old days of Twitter. But if you go to the website, you'll notice that things have been changing. And I think at some point, like you talk about that mission statement, like what does it even mean? It's trying to do like three things at once. I think at some point Twitter is going to drift more and more away from what Twitter started with. Right. So it'll be, it'll look more like Facebook, you know, they're already getting there with the cards and like messing up your timeline and stuff. And it'll, it'll evolve based on what they want to do as a business. And we'll realize at some point that it's, it doesn't, it doesn't quite, it's not what we thought it was at the beginning or what it was at the beginning. And yeah, it's, it's definitely evolving. I'm not sure if it's for the better or not, but it's, <laughs> it's evolving. Yeah. Uh, so long as they keep the uh, third party app support, I'll, I think I'll probably be okay. But if uh, the few times I've tried the native Twitter app, it's not as good of an experience for me, at least. I know some people like that and prefer it, but I don't. Right. I know so a lot of people that really like the the Twitter, the official app now, but yeah, most people like they swear by Tweetbot and if you took it away or Twitterific wasn't there, they would be in trouble. And luckily, so one of the things that really frustrated me with Twitter is that they introduced this 100,000 user token limit. So like a, a, a Twitter app that's starting out today or an app like Tweet Library, which is you know, has a much smaller user base, less than hundred thousand people, quite a bit less um, than something like Tweetbot or Twitterific, which is more mainstream. A smaller app like that cannot grow past a hundred thousand users, and so there's there's an obvious you know ceiling there. You can your app is going to die at some point. Like you can't maintain it forever, and you and can't monetize it over a certain. I mean, at some point, a hundred thousand yeah. times whatever your app price is, you're done. You're done. Right. That's the most you can possibly make on your app. And that really frustrated me, um, not personally, because I like I wanted to make money from my app for 10 years or 20 years. But just the idea that they would impose that on third party developers was really frustrating. The good news, though, from what you're talking about is that um, 
Tweetbot and Twitterific and those kind of apps that have been around for a while, they they were already past that limit. And so they get like double their user base or something. There's some formula. So they'll be around for a long time. Uh, luckily, they're kind of grandfathered in. But a long time is not forever. So, I mean, it's it's difficult to predict what, what five years uh, or 10 years looks like. Katie, what are you doing for Twitter these days? What apps are you using? Yeah, I'm using almost exclusive. Actually, I am using exclusively TweetBot everywhere. Um, I, I've tried switching to a couple other apps. I've, I've looked at Twitterific, especially, you know, sometimes because TweetBot hasn't been updated on, on, I, uh, on the iPad. iPad. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, I keep coming back to TweetBot, especially once they got their, their iPhone 6 update out. I just keep coming back to TweetBot. And part of it is because the sync across it works so well, partly because of, you know, integrated apps like TweetMarker, um, but also because, you know, certain filters that I have set up sync across all of the apps. So, you know, I've got certain – the big thing about TweetBot is it has keyword filters. And, you know, I'm sorry, I don't care about all the your football and baseball tweets and things like that. Not yours personally, David. I know you don't tweet a lot about football and baseball, but other people that I follow tweet a lot about sports. And so I have a lot of keyword specific things muted. That I, I, I have a feeling that, that Katie has an entirely different set of words to filter me out. Yes. Tweet but <laughs> T Jar Jar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all of this. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm with you, Manton. I, I'm not really sure where we're going with all this stuff. I, I do love Twitter. I sure hope that um, they don't break break my beloved Twitter. And if they do, I hope somebody smart like you figures something out for me. Because I've got no clue what to do next. <laughs> Hopefully someone's smarter than me. But yeah, yeah I mean, the, the Twitter, it's probably going to be around for a long time. There's giant company now. Yeah, but if they change so much, I mean, I, it seems yeah. to me one of the things they're trying to do is compete with Facebook. It seems that's as yeah. an outsider who doesn't really know a whole lot about it and barely uses Facebook. Um, it seems like they're saying, well, hey, Facebook's doing really good. Let's let's be like them. Where to me, the reason why I like Twitter so much is because they're not like Facebook. So <laughs> they're heading, in my mind, the wrong direction. But you know, yep. maybe they weren't making enough money from people like me. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that they were they'd be really stupid to lose what made Twitter great to begin with, because um, Facebook was around. I mean, I think there's a reason Twitter took off and because it was different in how it approached thinking about the world and communicating. So, yeah, hopefully I mean, the problem is like it's a huge company, but I feel like. There's so many people at that company, the vast majority that just they weren't maybe they weren't around, I don't know, at the early days or something. And maybe the the, the folks in power at least don't have quite enough of appreci appreciation of the Twitter that that we know and love. Well, I, I've seen just in my life sometimes once you start bringing in people that loan you vast sums of money, that that uh, priorities always get juggled around a lot. And it seems like that's been going on at Twitter for a while, but I think we're going probably too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> but So what are some of the, uh, let's get back to productivity a little bit. Cause I, I liked um, the, the, the idea. opposite of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we need breaks, Katie. We all need breaks once in a while. Um, the, uh, but, but I like the idea of, you know, the way you're managing mail through a web service, um, what else, what other apps are you using just kind of to manage your pro productivity, like in terms of task management and things like that? Sure. So I am using OmniFocus now. Finally, I was kind of late to the party on OmniFocus. And I think because I thought it was too much, you know, I thought I was like, I don't need 
something so big. And for for a long time, uh, a few years ago, I was using task paper, which I really loved because it was like just this really simple, you know, more like a text document. But yeah, I mean, that, that would be pushing all your buttons as a programmer. Yeah, I really, I liked the approach of it and it was just simple and fast. And I had these basically text files that had, you know, my to-do list and things that I'm working on, things I could mark done. And I liked that approach a lot. And so I experimented with different things, different web apps, but I finally ended up going to um, OmniFocus and I'm, I'm glad I did. I, re- I really like it and it's super powerful. And the, the way I use it is actually really simple. I mean, I, I actually hide a lot of the UI um, because at the beginning I was worried that it's like just too much. Yeah. And so I hide a lot of features that I don't use and it's, they've done a great job of like, just, I'm just going to hide this whole feature. I don't even have to worry about this. Right. And um, so I use it in a fairly simple way, managing projects and things I'm working on. Um, but I know that underneath there's all this extra power that I could, you know, maybe eventually I'll grow the way I'm using it. And all I have to do is like enable a couple other things. And I can continue to use the same app. Yeah, the trick is the perspectives, because OmniFocus lets you write these custom perspectives. You can make it really simple and then click one button and then all of a sudden add all this extra metadata, you know, depending on what you're up to. But I mean, somebody like you, I feel like, you know, that, you know, because people do write me sometimes say, well, you know, I use this application X and it's fine for my needs. And I'm like, great, then that's what you should use. I mean, I think that with like you were saying earlier that you try to remove complexity from your life. I think that's the trick with productivity apps. You get one that is complex as you need it, but no more complex. And you're, you're able to use OmniFocus in a simple way. So that, that solves the problem. But like someone like you, who's doing like has different areas of focus in their life, who has, you know, programming versus actually different, entirely different types of programming, plus podcasting, plus writing, plus all the other stuff you do. I mean, OmniFocus really has a lot to offer for someone like that. Yeah, it it really is super, super handy to have. The other thing I do is just write things down a lot because I can't remember anything that happened six months ago. And so, so I, how, how do you do that? So I used to use simple note a lot and I really loved it, but at, at some point and it gets back to like simplifying kind of centralizing the same type of thing on one service. I decided I just wanted like everything that's text related on Dropbox, no matter what I wanted everything on Dropbox. And so I switched to, you know, having note, uh, you know, text files on Dropbox and the app I use to manage it is called just notes. And it was perfect for me because it started, it could sync with simple note, but then it can also sync with just a folder on Dropbox. And so I transitioned over. And so I do a lot, a lot of my days actually, it seems like it's just, you know, in, in that app, note, taking notes, ideas, uh, keeping track of things that don't make sense in OmniFocus, brainstorming, yeah. sure. uh, you know, release notes and things that I need to kind of like type up and have in a certain place or paste somewhere else or whatever. I'm really struggling with this. I've been, this has been kind of an ongoing uh, theme on the show is that, yeah, I am, I've been using NVAlt with the variety of different iOS apps for years to manage all my text files. And I'm just looking at other options right now. I feel like I want to incorporate tags into these notes because I have so many of them and NVAlt has tags on the Mac, but it doesn't really transition well to the iOS apps. And I think I'm going to be looking for some iCloud-based solution as iCloud gets a little better 
And so there's like, there's an app right now I'm testing out called Write, W-R-I-T-E, and they've got a Mac app, an iPad, and an iPhone app. But I'm not entirely sold on it yet, but part of the problem is um, iCloud has had a bunch of issues, but it is getting better. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I tend not to use iCloud too much. And if, if yeah. I have a choice between Dropbox and iCloud, I use Dropbox every time. Yeah. And and so like with this, in this case, I mentioned just notes on the Mac I use, but there's no iOS version of that app. So like, but I still want to access it on iOS. So on iOS, I can use any app I want, basically. Yeah, there's so of, many. Yeah. yeah. So I use ByWord most of the time uh, for editing these notes and creating new ones. Um, but I could use something else. Uh, yeah. Kind of, I used editorial for a little while. I mean, I could, I could use different apps and still have access to my content, which I like. Yeah. It, it's really, there's an abundance of riches for text editing on iOS. And um, there's just a lot of good options. But yeah, that makes sense. So you stop and write, like, if you're out and about, do you write it on a piece of paper or do you just open up your phone and start typing in? Mostly open my phone up and, and start typing it in. And I just either an existing note or a new one, if it's something totally brand new. I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds of these notes in this folder and uh, I should probably organize them in subfolders at some point or something. But basically right now it's just this flat list of tons of notes and, um, you know, I sort reverse, you know, the new stuff at the top and it basically my day or week is a lot of time. It's an, I'm focusing a lot of time. It's just this notes, like the top 10 notes are things that I'm keeping track of the I'm, ideas or notes or stuff for, for apps, things I need to, you know, kind of remember or, or think about. I I've been, you know, dealing with this kind of this little issue talking about getting obsessed on a little issue. This is one that I've been struggling with. I even gave Evernote a month try say, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to try and keep text notes in Evernote. And, you know, it really ended up being a failed experiment for me, but Today I was in, in court and I had to get a note that I had forgot to remove from Evernote. And I went in there and it's like on the iPad on Evernote, when you have a text and maybe I'm doing something wrong, Katie, you can tell me if I'm doing it wrong. But the uh, on an iPad, if you have a text note in Evernote, like the, the left one third of the screen, even in portrait mode, is a list of notes. There's no view of just the text on the screen on the iPad. Hmm. I think I think you can double tap on the note and it will it will go full. Maybe I was tapping and I was trying to get it to show up and I was trying to get the text to adjust and maybe I didn't give it enough of an attempt. But uh, I've got to get this figured out. I can't wait for uh, the gang over at Vesper to come out. You know, with with their application across platform because I know they're working on on a um, Mac version. Yeah, that that would be great. The the user experience they have on iPhone, they just completely nailed it. I mean, it's very nice. Yeah, they just honed it and just polished it so much. It's really effortless to use. And it's and, got tags, but without yep. a sync to the Mac, it's not going to help me. Right. Yeah. And they've got the whole sync back end now. Just, uh, yeah. just missing the Mac app. I've played with Evernote a little bit. I have it installed. I have a couple of things in it. And I sometimes wish I had just kind of gone all in on Evernote years ago and just used it. But I didn't. And now I'm at a point where I, the system I have works fairly well. And I love that things are on Dropbox because uh, I feel like it gives me the flexibility to switch apps whenever I want. And so at one point, like maybe a year ago, I thought, you know, should I just move everything to Evernote? Because I, those guys are great. I mean, they're doing really good work. I, I think they've done excellent work. And I, I just like the company's focus and the direction of the company. 
but it just didn't, I didn't see the real advantage uh, for me personally. And I would have to give up that, that Dropbox sync, which I really like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's the exact same thing I went through when I had this month experiment and I didn't stick with it. Well, no. anyway, We've got we've got one more sponsor, so I want to take a quick break and talk about them. But when we come back, and I'll, I'll give you a few minutes to think about it so you can be prepared, um, I'd like to maybe wrap up with a couple of uh, picks. So talk to us about or think about both um, iOS and Mac apps that, you know, maybe are kind of those little gems that just – make your experience on Mac and, and iOS happy. And and they can be apps that we've heard of before or they can be a little more obscure, but you know, just just those little apps that just kind of make your experience on the Mac and iOS platform. And we'll talk about those when we get back. Um, but before we do, I want to take a break and talk about our last sponsor for this episode. And that is the fine folks over at 1Password. And, you know, David, I was just thinking, uh, you know, we got uh, iOS 8.1.1 update, I think, today, one of those iOS updates. And yeah. and one of the things that was fixed by that iOS update is you can now rearrange the order of extensions in the share sheet icon, and they will actually stick. And I was so excited because that means that my 1Password extension in my share sheet can now be moved to the front, and it will not keep getting bumped back to the back. Well, that, that's important. That was the that's most... The most that's the most useful one. The most important thing about this software update for me, which, which leads me to talk a little bit about 1Password version 5 for iOS, which was released alongside uh, iOS 8 uh, a couple of weeks ago. I guess it's probably been a, about a little more than a month ago now. Uh, but 1Password 5 brings a lot of updates to iOS, the big one being app extensions that we talked about. And, and here it is. You can use 1Password on iOS to log into a bunch of your favorite apps, and they've got a growing list on their website. But beyond that, you can also use 1Password now within Safari. So just like you could use their in-app 1Password browser, you can now fill your 1Password logins directly within Safari. And you don't even have to move your thumb to be able to do it, because if you've got one of these fancy new iPhones, or even an iPhone 5S with the, the Touch ID, you can unlock your 1Password uh, keychain using your fingerprint with Touch ID. You don't have to go in and type your master password or even your little PIN. They've got it all taken care of. Uh, they've completely rebuilt the syncing engine to use Apple's new Cloud Kit. They also now um, have advanced Wi-Fi sync capabilities. So if you want to keep your 1Password data completely out of the cloud, that's an option too. Of course, Dropbox is available still as an option. Uh, and there's so much more. But by the way, did I mention that 1Password 5 is now free? So 1Password 5 has adopted a freemium model. So you get all of the major features of 1Password 5 on iOS for free. Uh, and then there is pro features uh, that all the 1Password 4 for iOS customers get uh, for free. And if you want the pro features, you can unlock them all with an in-app purchase. And the pro features would include creating a full range of items, including bank accounts, email accounts, memberships, passports, reward programs, organizing your items in folders and tags, creating multiple vaults, adding custom fields, uh, and a whole lot more. So 
1Password 5 is available now for iOS. Uh, if you have not jumped into 1Password yet, this is absolutely the time to do it. Um, and go ahead and download that uh, iOS update and rearrange your extensions so that they're in the proper order. Uh, you can find out more on their website at onepassword.com. And thanks to the folks at Agile Bits for continuing to support Mac Power users. You know, I would add as a public service announcement that 8.1.1 makes iCloud work a lot better. I am. Um, I wrote about it on the website, complaining about the troubles I was having with 8.1 and iCloud Sync, and uh, several developer friends told me to install the beta of 8.1.1. I've been running that for about a week. And it, it is much faster. I mean, by the time the show publishes, that update will be a week old. So people may have already figured that out. But if you've been waiting to try iCloud Drive, it's it's a, it's much more um, usable now. I, I will admit that I waited a couple of hours before I downloaded it. And that one advantage to using Twitter, I was making sure that nobody's phone was bricked before, before well, I hit the update wasn't... button. Yeah, I, I suspect that problem is not going to happen again but i know I but you, you never, never know. know there but, could be there could be other problems but the but the icloud drive uh, and uh, manton do you use icloud drive much i haven't yet i've yeah. just played with a little bit but i haven't used it too much yet. well it's there was something you know it was it was tough because there's all these people developers relying on it and with the 8.1 update it just was not working even with the like numbers and pages and keynote, even the Apple apps, it was very, yeah. very slow. And it was crashing some developers apps. It was not great. Yeah. So yeah. they, they've got, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a stellar way to get confidence in this, <laughs> this pack sync, but uh, with the, this update, it's actually much better. So That's I don't good. know. So, That's so good. what are some of the little apps that help you uh, be awesome? You know, I wish I had some like little gems that no one else has heard before. They're mostly pretty standard. Uh, like what do you got up in your menu stuff. bar? So I'm looking. Okay, my, I was looking at my phone, but I'll look at the Mac instead. <laughs> um, well, you can look at whatever. I uh, on my menu bar. What do I have here? Dropbox. Um, I have a little app that I actually use a lot called Swing, and it was for uh, app.net, <laughs> which is kind of appropriate since we were talking about it uh, kind of fading away. But it just, you know, uploads clipboards to the app.net file storage. And I got in the habit of using that because I used, I tried to use app.net for a lot of things, and I liked the idea of kind of owning your content there. And so I still use that. I know there's a lot of different things that do that, but that's up in my menu bar and is my kind of default app for sharing uh you know screenshots or whatever really quick it just uploads to your file storage and then gives you a url back um what else do i have here day one in my menu bar i'm a huge fan of day one not really so a productivity now, thing but <laughs> now do you have day one remind you to add to your journal I have it uh, not on the Mac. I yeah. tried to disable that on the Mac. Yeah, I had it was, to as well. <laughs> yeah, it really was interrupting me. Um, I, I do have it badged the icon on iOS still. And I can't say that for most apps. It's it's on my home screen, day one. And the way I do my iPhone, it, there's only, I only have two screens. And the first is all apps and the bottom row is empty. So it's not quite as cluttered. And then the second screen is basically all folders, more or less. And now, do, you, goes do you use, on day one, do you make a journal for like to share with other people or is it for your own? I mean, oh, right now, just my own private um, use. I, for, for uh, years, I got in the habit of keeping, 
keeping a kind of a handwritten journal and, you know, I mean, habit, I mean, some, you know, sometime months would go by, I wouldn't write it, but I filled a few of those and it, I finally switched to kind of digital version of that with day one. And so it's all just private stuff, stuff, you know, whatever's happening with family work, you know, stuff that I want to go back. Like I said, I can't remember anything six months ago. And I, I love going back a couple years, five years, whatever. Um, and just those little moments that I, that I wouldn't need, I just wouldn't be able to recall something with my kids, whatever. Uh, I love being able to read those again and kind of relive, <laughs> relive the, the old stuff. So that's how I used day one. Yeah, I actually had, I made, I made, I use it the same way. I, it's just for me, I don't even like the people in my daily life who don't listen to the show, obviously, <laughs> uh, they have no idea I even do it, but mm -hmm. I find it kind of therapeutic, the process of making those entries. And I do occasionally like to go back and read them. And I, I made that comment on the show, I don't know, six months ago. And I got this very angry email from a listener who was a software engineer saying, Hey, if you're not going to share it with people, why are you even writing it? And huh. he just didn't get the idea that, you know, I just doing it for myself. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's part of it, it's funny because I, part of it, I write for myself and part of it, I have this idea in my head that like, hopefully this isn't soon, but one day, uh, 50 years, I don't know, whatever, you know, when I'm gone, like I wouldn't mind if like my kids had this journal or, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want to get too dark, <laughs> depressing on the show, but like, um, I do, I write it for myself, but also kind of my future self and maybe my kids or something else. I don't know. It's possible. The stuff on the, the web and the stuff in a digital text file is fragile and it's possible the stuff won't last. Um, but if it does last, I think there's some interesting value in keeping a journal. That's um, funny. So it's we'll funny because with me, I feel like there's no way any of my kids would ever actually want to read my ramblings, right. my manifesto. <laughs> but but I would give anything to read something my father wrote. Yes, as he was going through periods of his life, and you know, and he's been gone for twenty years. So, yeah, yes. I I can see where you're coming from with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, I think it's actually kind of it's a larger problem, actually, that I hope we eventually figure out is this this thing about how nothing lasts on the Internet. And, uh, you know, you write a blog post 10 years ago and the server gets moved or something, it's gone. And and I, I think there's value in capturing stuff, whether it's privately or whether it's something you capture publicly or maybe it's like a podcast you know, interview, anything like capturing stuff because there's value later later on in addition to now. Yeah. It's, but, um, and that's one of the reasons why I bang on so much about markdown and simple text files, because I just really feel strongly that those text files are going to be something that, that is valuable over time. I mean, you know, there's even compatibility issues with fairly recent versions of pages. I mean, yeah. we, we need to, we need to put our, our thoughts into a way that people can read them. I've got an, if this, then that rule that every time I post something to maxsparky.com, it yanks the text out and saves it to a Dropbox file. And yep. so everything I write gets saved automatically. And I see the little, you know, Hazel notification show up as it files it away for me about, you know, a minute or two after I post. And, and I, I just feel strongly that if you're writing anything that you want to last for any amount of time, don't put it in a proprietary format. Yeah, I completely agree. I've, I mean, I've lost a bunch of stuff that I would love to get back to proprietary 
formats. So it, really, the truth is like the only formats that last, I think, right now are like text files, like basic graphic, you know, ping, JPEG, um, HTML, MP3. That's basically it. like anything outside <laughs> those few, like don't count on being able to read it uh, yeah. in 10 years. And I have, yeah, I have, I have old email and weird formats going, you know, I have, you know, mail formats. I've got, um, yeah, I don't know, probably have some like Claris work documents or something from the dark ages. Like, and like you said, even, even, uh, some of the new iWork stuff is, uh, only a few years back you you can't read that stuff anymore so yeah it's like i'm pretty sure that like the star trek enterprise will be able to read my text file but <laughs> you know my mac write file i don't think i think they're in trouble yeah exactly yeah and that's part of one of the things i love about uh putting a lot on dropbox is it kind of it forces me to make sure that because by default a lot of the stuff that goes there is one of these kind of standard open formats you mentioned if this, this and that. I, I love that too. And I, I, it's the kind of thing I set up a couple like f- filters and I kind of forget about it. But, you know, it does the same kind of things that you talked about. Like I have my Instagram photos, it pulls those to Dropbox uh, when they're posted, stuff like that. It's really handy. Do you use any of these automated if this then that to day one type rules or do you, is that cheating? I, I don't think it's cheating, but I don't use it. Um, I know there's a couple things that attempt to put a lot of stuff, uh, in day one, which I think is really interesting. And if it works for people, great. I, I don't, I, I, everything I put in a day one, I, I type and actually I'm really kind of stupid about it where I, it's actually all text. Like I don't put photos. I don't put, for some reason, I just, like I said, I started like handwriting like journals. And then when I switched to day one, I basically kept exactly the same format except that I type it in instead of writing it. Um, and so I'm, I'm real strict about that for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it's just everything that goes in there is something I type and that's it. Sometimes I'll take a picture for my diary entries, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, I'm still figuring it out. I mean, I, I kind of committed to it a couple of years ago and some months I'm really good at having a bunch of entries and some months I'm not. And the thing that bothers me, sometimes mine seem like whining. I start reading them. I'm like, I'm whining too much. I just need to get my act together. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe that's helpful in itself to see when I'm catching myself doing that a lot. Maybe there's something I need to be working on. Yeah, I, I, I try to get into the habit. I mean, we talked about you got to get into the habit of blogging or writing or whatever. And I think the thing, keeping a journal is the same way. Like I said, I have the badge notification on day one on my iPhone. And that's one of the very few apps. Like one of the first things I do when an app starts to being annoying is I go and I turn all that off. So, but like right now on my home screen, yeah, day one, it's, it has a little badge icon telling me uh, I'm overdue to write something. Well, Manton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, where can people find you? Um, tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days and, and where people can find your stuff. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's been really great. Uh, I think the best place to find me is manton.org. It's my main blog, uh, M-A-N-T-O-N dot O-R-G. And uh, I was going to say it links to everything, but actually I just switched blogging platforms after 10 years. Uh I switched them to WordPress finally. And so it's actually a really kind of a plain template and it doesn't link to everything, but that's, that's a good place uh, to, to start. And a lot of the products that we talked about are on riverfold.com and I link to those there. 
And uh, don't find me on Twitter because as we talked about, I'm not posting there anymore. Um, but uh, the blog is the best place to start. And I still cross post uh, my microblog stuff from my blog to app.net too. And I'm at Manton on that if you're, if you're still in that service. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much, Manton. Um, it, it was long overdue. And uh, thank you for everything you bring to the community. And uh, Katie, where can you find us? Well, you can find links to everything that we've talked about in this episode at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Floyd. David is at Mac Sparky, and the show is at MacPowerUsers. And if you've got feedback, send it to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Katie and I will both get it, and we will try and get back with you. And uh, thanks to our sponsors today, the Omni Group. Uh, Agile Bits and One Password, Automatic, and Pixelmator. We will see you all next week. Bye.